Good morning. Please turn in your Bibles this morning to Genesis 26. Genesis chapter 26. Our story in Genesis has transitioned now from Abraham and Sarah to Isaac and Rebekah. And the text made clear that the covenant promise God gave to Abraham was to be passed down through Isaac and not Ishmael. This didn't mean Ishmael was going to hell or that God hated Ishmael. No, in fact, God blessed Ishmael for Abraham's sake. But Genesis is clear. The covenant promised to Abraham that God would bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you and will give your descendants the land of Canaan and that all the nations of the world would be blessed through you. That promise was passed on to Isaac, not Ishmael. Last week, Isaac and Rebekah's kids, Jacob and Esau, were introduced out of chronological order because they were part of the discussion of Abraham's descendants. But they had not yet been born in chapter 26. Otherwise, everyone would know Rebekah and Isaac were not brother and sister, as they claimed. Anyway, before we talk more about that, let's pray. Lord, we ask you would guide our discussion again this morning, once again. Pray that your Holy Spirit would draw us closer to yourself through what we encounter in your word. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, before we actually get into the text, I want to clarify something. I often talk about the covenant promise that God made to Abraham. Why not just say promise? Why covenant promise? What does the word covenant add, anyway? In Genesis 15, right after, Ab or God's, right after Abraham believed God and he counted it to him for righteousness, God tells Abraham to take some animals and cut them in half. Then God alone, symbolized by a smoking fire pot and a blazing torch, passes between those cut-up animals, ratifying a solemn oath or covenant as if God was saying to Abraham, may I be cut up in pieces like these animals if I do not keep this solemn covenant promise. It's like God is swearing an oath on his own destruction. May I be destroyed if I don't keep this promise. Now, any promise that God makes is totally secure, of course. But when I say covenant promise, I'm emphasizing the serious, unconditional, unchangeable, solemn nature of that promise. But once again, that promise is seemingly in jeopardy. Let's start by reading verses 1 to 7. Now there was a famine in the land, beside the previous famine in Abraham's time. And Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines in Gerar. The Lord appeared to Isaac and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land where I tell you to live. Stay in this land for a while, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and your descendants, I will give all these lands and will confirm the oath I swore to your father Abraham. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and will give them all these lands. And through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because Abraham obeyed me and did everything I required of him, keeping my commands, my decrees, and my instructions. So Isaac stayed in Gerar. Now these verses repeat the covenant promise God gave to Abraham, and that promise is now being passed on to Isaac. 
but there is a famine in the land. So Isaac heads west to the land of the Philistines, where Abimelech is king. Isaac worries that the men of that land will kill him and take his wife. Verse 7 says, When the men of that place asked him about his wife, he said, She is my sister, because he was afraid to say she is my wife. He thought, The men of this place might kill me on account of Rebekah, because she's beautiful. Now, if all this sounds familiar, it should. A very similar thing happened twice to Abraham. The first time was when Abraham and Sarah went to Egypt, and they agreed to tell people there that they were brother and sister. Abraham and Sarah later told Abimelech, king of the Philistines, the same thing. And now we have Isaac and Rebekah trying to pass themselves off as brother and sister to the Philistines as well. At least Abraham and Sarah were half-brother and sister. That was not true of Isaac and Rebekah. In chapter 20, verse 13, Abraham had told Abimelech that everywhere he and Sarah went, they told people that Sarah was his sister. In other words, although the Bible only records two times when Abraham and Sarah tried to pass off his brother and sister, in reality, they did this everywhere they went. And their son Isaac apparently learned well the lesson from his parents. Now, most scholars think Abraham and Isaac were uncaring male chauvinists who treated their wives like trash and were fully willing to give their wives to someone else just to save their own neck. Other scholars believe, however, that Abraham and Sarah, and now Isaac and Rebekah, did this because if the men of the region thought they were husband and wife, they might kill the husband and take the wife. But if the men of that area thought they were brother and sister, culture would dictate that they would have to negotiate with the brother in order to marry the sister. And Abraham or Isaac could then reject any offers they got and protect their wives. Unless, of course, the threat came from the kings and they couldn't reject the king. We found in chapter 24 that Isaac loved Rebekah. And we'll see in just a minute that Isaac and Rebekah are caught messing around together. That doesn't sound to me like a guy who is willing to give up his wife just to save his own neck. So I tend to think Abraham and Isaac were trying to protect their wives and not give them away. Either way, Isaac's lying was an example of faltering faith. In verse 3, God specifically told Isaac that he would be with him. And God promised that he would make Isaac's descendants numerous. Isaac should have trusted the specific word he received from God. Apparently, however, the brother and sister lie had been working pretty well for quite a while, at least until Isaac and Rebecca mess up with some PDA, or public display of affection, as we used to call it on college campuses. Verse 8 says, When Isaac had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked down from a window and saw Isaac caressing his wife, Rebecca. Now, the word that NIV translates as caressing here is translated differently in various translations. For example, caressing, sporting with, laughing with, fondling, and one translation even paraphrases it as making love. However it is translated, the Hebrew word can have sexual implications. I think the word fondling is probably the clearest translation. To caress or fondle one's sister is so evil and perverted that even the pagan Philistines wouldn't do it. So when Abimelech saw it, he knew Isaac and Rebekah were lying. So in verses 9 and 10, Abimelech summoned Isaac and said, 
She is really your wife. Why did you say she is my sister? Isaac answered him, Because I thought I might lose my life on account of her. Then Abimelech said, What is this you have done to us? One of your men might well have slept with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. Isaac and Rebekah have been busted. Their lie has been exposed. Now word will get out, and people will know Rebekah is Isaac's wife. And the Philistines will know, that, will know there is no point in negotiating for her, and they just need to kill him and take her. Isaac's white life and the future of the promise is now in serious jeopardy. But in verse 11, because of Abimelech's kindness and God's sovereign protection, Abimelech gave orders to all the people, anyone who harms this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. So Isaac's plan to keep he and Rebekah safe falls apart, and it's only by God's protection through Abimelech that God's covenant promise is secure. God had made a solemn covenant promise to bless Abraham and his descendants, specifically including Isaac, and that is exactly what he was doing. That God was blessing Isaac becomes even more clear in the next verses. In verses 12 through 15, Isaac planted crops in that land. And the same year reaped a hundredfold because the Lord blessed him. The man became rich and his wealth continued to grow until he became very wealthy. He had so many flocks and herds and servants that the Philistines envied him. So all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the time of his father Abraham, the Philistines stopped up, filling them with earth. So the Philistines envied Isaac's wealth, and envy does strange things to people. These wells weren't hurting anyone. In fact, out in the middle of that desert, they were essential for life. But the Philistines filled them up, either out of spite or perhaps to force Isaac to move away. Even the king became concerned about Isaac's wealth and power. Verses 16 and 17 say, Then Abimelech said to Isaac, Move away from us. You have become too powerful for us. So Isaac moved away from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar, where he settled. Now Isaac apparently didn't move too far away because he was still in the valley where the town of Gerar was, where the king lived. But Isaac was in a desert and had to have water. So verse 19 says, Isaac's servants dug a well in the valley and discovered a fresh well of water there. The herds of Gerar said that the well belonged to them, and an argument ensued. So Isaac then moved on and dug another well, but the herders of Gerar disputed that one too. Now it's interesting to me that Isaac doesn't say, hey, those wells are mine. My servants dug them, and God gave me this land, and I will go to war to keep it. After all, even the Philistines admitted that Isaac was now too powerful for them. But unlike with Joshua, God had not told Isaac to go to war. So he just patiently, very patiently, avoids confrontation and moves on. He is trusting God to give him the land in God's own timing. Now, this is the same Isaac whose faith faltered when it came to trusting God to take care of him and Rebekah, but he's now trusting God with the land. It's a very realistic picture. The Bible doesn't pretend that people like Noah or Abraham or Isaac or Jacob are faultless superheroes. They are very human. 
just like us. They have times when they're standing strong for the Lord and other times not so much. They were human, just like us. Isaac finally moved far enough away that when he dug the well he called Rehoboth, which means space or room, no one disputed it. So he said in verse 22, Now the Lord has given us room, and we will flourish in this land. From there, Isaac went from Rehoboth to Beersheba, which was about 19 miles or a day's journey. Verse 24 says, That night the Lord appeared to him and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will bless you, and you will increase the number of your descendants for the sake of my servant Abraham. So once again, God appears to Isaac and reaffirms that the covenant promise he made to Abraham has now been passed on to Isaac. I hope you're noticing how often this idea of God's covenant promise to Abraham and his offspring keeps coming up over and over again in Genesis. In chapter 12, chapter 13, chapter 15, chapter 17, chapter 18, chapter 21, chapter 22, chapter 24, and now in verses 3 and 4, and again in verses 13 and 14 of chapter 26. And that's because this covenant is one of the major themes in the entire book of Genesis. It's what Genesis is about. Now, I'm just going to summarize verses 25 to 33. Uh, Isaac built an altar and worshipped the Lord there while his servants dug another well. We'll see in a minute that, they, that what they dug, or what they did, was to dig out one of the wells that Abraham had dug that the Philistines had filled in. Meanwhile, King Abimelech and his personal advisor came from Gerar with Phicol, the commander of his forces. In modern terms, this may have been something like the president coming with his chief of staff and secretary of state. They told Isaac that it was obvious that the Lord had blessed Isaac, and they wanted to make sure that Isaac would treat them as well as they had always treated Isaac. I think Abimelech was trying to put a positive spin on history, since some Philistine herdmen had not treated Isaac very well at all. And not only that, but verse 27 said that it was out of hostility that Abimelech sent Isaac away. In other words, when Abimelech told Isaac to move away from us in verse 16, he is sending Isaac into the desert where, without water, Isaac is certain to encounter disastrous ruin. And Abimelech knew that. Aren't you glad that modern politicians never try to reimagine history? In verse 28, when Abimelech says, we saw clearly that the Lord was with you, what he really means is probably, we expected you to be ruined out in the desert and be forced to move far away from us, but God blessed you with water, and you're still very wealthy and powerful. So now we'd like to move to plan B and make a treaty with you to ensure our safety. Isaac was gracious. At this point, Isaac was more powerful than Abimelech. But rather than telling Abimelech to go fly a kite, Isaac prepared a big feast, and they swore out a non-aggression treaty. After the king and his men left, Isaac's servants told him of the well they had dug and how they hit water. So they called the well Sheba. And verse 33 says, To this day the name of the town has been called Beersheba. Beersheba means well of seven, or well of the oath. This well had been called Beersheba since the days of Abraham. And since a town had sprung up around it, 
the town was now called Beersheba too. And finally, verses 34 and 35 show that although Isaac and Rebekah were devoted to God, they had become a dysfunctional family. But you'll have to come back next week to learn more about that. Or you could read ahead. Now, the main point of this chapter is to re-emphasize yet again how God's covenant promise to Abraham to bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you, to give you the land of Canaan, and to bless all nations of the earth through you. That covenant promise was now being reaffirmed and passed down to Isaac. And the story shows how God began to bless Isaac, both financially and by protecting him and Rebekah from harm in potentially dangerous territory. It shows, once again, how God sovereignly protected his promise. Now, I'll just make pra uh, three practical applications about this passage. My first observation has to do with the sin of envy. When God blessed Isaac with even more wealth and power than Abraham had, according to verse 14, the Philistines became envious. And rather than rejoicing that more water was be being discovered in the desert, which could be good for everyone, they became envious and began filling in the wells. Today, we call that cutting off your nose to spite your face. We hear a lot about corporate greed these days, but we don't hear, often hear much about the envy of those who complain about corporate greed. Envy is just as sinful as greed. We should rejoice in other people's success and not envy them. Second, I think this story may be a good illustration of Paul's admonition in Romans 12, 18, where he writes, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Although conflict is sometimes necessary, Isaac went out of his way to avoid unnecessary conflict. And we should usually do the same. Some people, on the other hand, seem to thrive on conflict. They make a mountain out of every molehill. They get off on pushing people's buttons. Love of conflict may be a money-making quality for radio talk show hosts, but it's not good for families. It's not good for churches, and it's not biblical. Sometimes confrontation is necessary, and some conflict is unavoidable. That was certainly true of Jesus, Paul, and the prophets. But generally speaking, our goal should be to strive to keep peace with each other. Finally, this passage raises the issue of faith and works once again. In verse 4, God reaffirms his covenant with Isaac. And verse 5 says, this is because Abraham obeyed me. Now, I know I've talked about this many times before, but since it keeps coming up in the text, I'm going to keep talking about it. The question is this, was Abraham blessed because of his faith, as it says in chapter 15, or because of his obedience, as it says in verse 5 of chapter 26? I think one reason many find this so hard to understand is because many pastors and churches have defined faith or believing in mostly intellectual terms. If you just believe Jesus was God who died on the cross for your sins, and you trust that he will take you to heaven, he will, or so they say. It really used to bother me that this teaching only seemed to be supported by a few very carefully supported selected verses. Now, I'm not a very good Calvinist, but I completely agree with John Calvin when he wrote that saying, saving faith has more to do with the disposition or attitude of your heart than it does with your brain. Saving faith, whether we're talking about us or Abraham, 
or Isaac is characterized by words like dedication, commitment, devotion, loyalty, and allegiance. If you have that Holy Spirit-produced heart attitude of loving devotion and dedication to God, specifically God the Son in the New Testament, it will always begin to produce a change in your life. It will produce good works. Because of this close, inseparable connection between faith and works, Genesis can say Abraham believed God and it counted him for righteousness. But Genesis can also say that God blessed Abraham because he obeyed. The Bible sometimes focuses on faith as the source of good works, and sometimes it talks about the works or obedience as the inevitable evidence of faith. So yes, Abraham obeyed God, and God blessed him for it. But why did Abraham obey God? He had an obedience that comes from faith. Having a heart of saving faith or devotion to the Lord is not about being perfect, of course. No one is. Certainly not Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob. And this is certainly not be about being saved by works. No one will be saved by good works. The issue when it comes to saving faith is the heart. Where is your heart? Is your ultimate allegiance or faith in Jesus or someplace else? Let's pray. Lord, strengthen our faith. Strengthen our commitment, our dedication, and our love for you. Father, I pray if there's anyone here this morning who doesn't have that commitment and allegiance and dedication to you, that you would touch their hearts, draw them into repentance, and turn their hearts to you. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.